This is the Drummer's Resource Podcast, session 57. And the quote of the day is from Merlin Olson, who said, One of life's most painful moments comes when we must admit that we didn't do our homework, that we are not prepared. You're listening to the Drummer's Resource Podcast, home of in-depth interviews with the world's greatest drummers and industry professionals. Information, education, and motivation for drumming and beyond. Hey, what's going on, everybody? Nick Ruffini here with another session of the Drummer's Resource Podcast. And I apologize that this podcast is getting out a little late. I had some scheduling conflicts uh, out of my control that did not allow me to do an interview. So, But I do have this other interview that I want to share with you with the great Chuck Treese. And Chuck is from Philadelphia. I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, I've studied with Chuck before and hung with him and played music with him and and we've a bunch of mutual friends and like I said I've 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 known Chuck for a long time but I've always looked up to Chuck he's a little bit older than me and he has played with a slew of great players I mean he's played with uh with G Love and and he's played with Pearl Jam and he's done some stuff with Amy Grant and worked on some Sting tunes and Billy Joel and he also had this band called McRad or still has this band called McRad and they were a skateboarding uh, punk band from they started in 1982 and they're still active, which is crazy. And but Chuck is a multi instrumentalist. He's a drummer. He's a keyboard player. He's a bass player. He's a guitar player. And he also is a professional skateboarder, which is even cooler than that. And uh, yeah, he's just he has so much knowledge and just an amazing human being. And ever since the first day I met him, has been very very nice to me and has been always willing to share knowledge and open to all all sorts of ideas and music and stuff like that, which is what has made Chuck great for all these years. So I'm really looking forward to getting into this interview with Chuck. Real quick, I know I announced this before, but the newdrummersresource.com is now up and running. Check it out. Let me know what you think. If you have any feedback on it, please do not hesitate. Send me some information, nick at drummersresource.com. And if you want to sign up for the mailing list, you can get that Stick Control Variations book for free, 100% free. It's normally $9.99. It's 11 creative exercises to help you increase your independence and your speed and your chops, your dexterity, all that stuff. And that's 100% free when you sign up for the mailing list at drummersresource.com. So check that out as well. And let's get into the interview. Mr. Chuck Treese. Chuck, what's going on, man? How you doing? Good, good. Just sitting here just eating some beans and some cabbage. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Get, get my day ready. There you go. There you go. It's been a while, man. We haven't we haven't chatted. We were just talking off air that uh, I got. I think I'm wondering how how we got introduced. Oh, you know what? I think Stacy McGee introduced us to each other. Yeah. Years ago. Wow. That's yeah. Crazy. I saw he was. I just saw he was. Uh, he was in Europe or somewhere. I think he's on the road with somebody. I'll have to nice. catch up. I'll have to catch up with him too. Good him. So how have you been, man? How it seems like you always got a lot of stuff going on. Yeah, I've just been kind of mainly for the past year, just recording a bit of recording studio sound mine and also Sweet Creek. You know, because I moved up to the Bucks County area mm-hmm. like 2010, 2000, right at the start of 2011, and I just kind of wanted to create a new scene for me to net people, you know, musicians that I kind of randomly play 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 live shows with in like New Hope at John and Peters, this guy Scott Redner, and then. Mickey from Ween and then Claude Coleman and all those guys and Glenn McClellan, all the touring guys around, you know, Bucks County. And I just felt like they were appreciating music at a, at a different level up there, just a little bit more fun, but still people were like, you know, paying their bills and having a good time. But these guys still wanted to play jazz and the same guys that would play on the jazz gigs would play the rock gigs. So it was like, and, and the city here was a little bit, Philly was a little bit more separated, but up there it just seemed like it's because there was, a lesser amount of people, it just seemed like they were like in into the, just keeping music alive. You know, basically their their everyday week up there is filled with basically like seventy percent of music. You know, nice. outside of working, so it's it's amazing that Bucks County still to me holds that sense of like if you need a place to go train and get yourself together and still be professional and learn how to present yourself and ask for the right amount of money and and kind of take the ups and downs of what you know, these neighborhoods go through. I think it's it's the only area that I know that can get you ready for getting on a plane and going to California or going to Europe. And not that Philly doesn't. It's just that Philly's always been this scene that's been, like, 
kind of the underdog to New York, the underdog to maybe its own self, because, you know, there's so many musical geniuses that come out of the city, but they've all kind of like take their history and go somewhere else. So I wanted to Mm -hmm. kind of bring it back, right? you know, into like the whole of Pennsylvania, because we're all connected musically. We all know the music. We all study different styles of music, you know, and more than most states and cities do, I I feel. Mm -hmm. Not to distance ourselves from anybody else or get off the trail of drum talk but i think that most drummers here understand music and composition of music a lot more than most of the places you know that i've that i've seen right know? and this it's, it's not a it's not a competition it's just that that's just the way it is here if mm-hmm. you don't understand the songwriting here you don't get work right and we're you know we're we're both from phil well you're originally from from newark delaware right yeah yeah but so but we you know we've we've been in philly for years and would you agree that the Philly scene is just not what it was though? It's not as, it's not as thriving and it's, it's not as, uh, it's not as nurturing as it used to be. Yeah. I'm, it's not as nurturing as far as like when I, I mean, I've been coming here since I've been a kid since like, like, like 67, you know what I mean? So it's like my mom always lived here. So I would always go to like the super Sundays and all the different fests and, go to see the Jackson five. And, you know, my mom took me to see Parliament Funkadelic. So I had, I had all these different, outlets but then she would take me into like what was going on in in the city and it just seemed like there was more people and not to get into an ethnic thing it just seemed like there was more inner city people playing instruments you know and not that there isn't a lot now but it just seemed like the neighborhoods now are more thrived on like the digital aspect of music versus like the playing aspect of music because i remember there was like tons of guitar players around tons of bass players around black and white and they all played rock and they all played you know, funk, you know, reggae was like the, the newest thing in punk rock that that most musicians were getting into. So it was, you know, Philly had nothing to do but to nurture, you know, music. But once everything kind of caught up to itself and MTV age and then the video age and, you know, the dot com age, I mean, it just seemed like because we didn't get that type of money and infrastructure here, it, it, it led people to just kind of leave Philly. And then all the nurturing aspects of Philly go to like, well, I have to survive versus what's going to keep me happiest and what's going to keep us all alive because, you know, we have a huge history of music that still goes kind of uncharted, even back to the, you know, the early days of, like, Coltrane and all those guys, you know, running around here. I mean, you have to really dig deep to find out that most of these guys were, like, in Philly getting their acts together and then Mm -hmm. going to New York or then going to somewhere else. And, you know, I, I feel that the scene is nurturing enough now, but it just seems like it's 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 all governed or it's all kind of driven by different pockets versus like well what is the philadelphia sound right now like it was black lily and it was the roots but now the roots are uh, you know a national tv band so now they're a national sound so you know i feel that if we can keep you know kind of feeding the, the history information back to like maybe you arts or any of the the, the the small factions of people who like have the most input to these kids that would be great because before we never thought that oh well maybe we should get all this information into the universities but now like guys like kevin hansen and eric johnson i mean they're at uarts i mean there's great people over at drexel teaching audio engineering classes so you kind of have to go into things that we kind of hid from which was the corporate world we were never like inside of it but now all of our talented people are inside of it so it's a we we're forced to go inside and, and it's not as nurturing it's just that you have to kind of like build yourself up to even get that mindset of like, wow, whether I'm going to go teach at UR, to take classes at UR, or sit in, or, or hang out, you know, this whole different mindset. Before, you could just walk out in the city, you could see people playing on the street, you can like go into Bob and Barbara's, you can go into Gertz, you can go into any, you know, Dobbs, you can just go anywhere and you can just see great music. And now it's all just kind of like fragmented because it, I don't, I don't think that, we're conversating the same way that we used to because it's it's a it's a corporate it's a corporate world at this point. You mm-hmm. know? And it's not not that that's bad. I mean, I just feel that Philadelphia needs to be a part of like, well, if it's going to be corporate and here, we should be the history making of why it's corporate because we at least give enough soul so it doesn't become so homogenized and so like out of sorts that they just forget like, well, what is jazz or what is funk or what is go-go, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what is real house music or what's real reggae or real dance hall? Or, but all the gigs that drummers have to play, and, and, and I've come across a lot of drummers now, they're just like one 
trick ponies where they just know how to play one style of music and that was never you could never just when i came up as a drummer in philly like with just one style of music it just it just wasn't the guys i looked up to could play everything you mm-hmm. know what i mean that that's what's nurturing about philly and we i think that we can't let that go because drummers you know have an influence on bass players bass players have an influence on drummers and then we have an influence on a guitar player and we're the rhythm section and we influence the lead singer or the person conducting us or, you know what I mean, or pe- people that read or people that don't read, you know, I mean, there's so many different ways of what Philly used to be to music. And I think that for someone coming into Philly that doesn't know the history, they'll just have to kind of go to the universities versus just like put, putting themselves in right in the middle of the scene like I did in 82. I just came here. I was in punk rock, but I was like, I'm going to find out what's going on in jazz and what's going on. And all I had to do was just get on the L and just, figure out what was going on and that's how I did it for years and years and years I just would ride my skateboard around and just go to different clubs you know and 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 just have my ears open and then sometimes I go in and you know extend in and get my feelings hurt you know but that was all a part of you know getting better now it's I don't know if kids are really doing that anymore I don't know if they're you know what I mean if they're really searching as much because it's so much of a like a production-based industry you know what I mean you have to be doing something or churning out something or on your Instagram, or on your Twitter, or you know what I mean, or uploading a video, and like, when do you get time to just sit down and be like, well, what do you sound like, and what do I sound like, or am I the right person for this gig, or am I not the right person for this gig, or you know, like how we sat and like, you know what I mean, you know, you know sharing information and you doing certain gigs, and you know, you know your musicians, I know my musicians, and then we all kind of know each other, and now you know people are having kids and they're all like off in their own little microcosms, but we as musicians are like artists, like how. Salvador, you know Salvador Dali or any of these guys, Andy Warhol, they all had their clicks and their scenes, and and that's where I think our nurturing comes together. I just see the disconnect within the history aspect of what Philadelphia music is all about. That's that's what's that's the most kind of disappointing thing, especially for drummers, because uh, drummers should Philadelphia drummers should or Pennsylvania drummers should know the history of music and where they stand and, and how it started and. Where, it's, where it led us to, and you know, from Amir back, or from me to Amir, or from Philly Joe Jones to Byron Landham to you know any, anybody, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Just there's so much information, but because it's a money-based industry at this point, if everybody's out gigging and we're not coming back to nurture what's going on here in, in our own hometown, it's just going to seem like well, unless you have a gig, you don't really need to know the history. You don't really need to know why it's 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 a people-based environment, and it is. and It always should be that. So you can have fun here in PA or Philly, and then when you hit the road, you go do your job. And then when you know you come home, you have your certain amount of gigs or your certain amount of people you collab with or, you know what I mean, anything. I just, it was way more hands-on when I was coming up. And it's not that it isn't now. I just don't, I don't know why that things have to change just because, you know, a smartphone comes in or, you know, iPhone comes in. It's, it, we should have more access to what what we're all about. You know, cause I, I, I don't know, I teach a couple of different drum people and, and bass people, and, and, and every time I turn around, it's just I, I just hear this one side of music coming out of their, their soul, and I'm just looking at them like, wow, this music is something that you really have to kind of sacrifice yourself for to get the most out of it, and it's not about being well-known, I mean, that's great, but I would not want to be on stage being well-known and not being able to feel music. I would just right. walk off the stage, you know <laughs> what I mean? Uh, like yeah. It's not, I'm not trying to, be, you know, it's, it's, great to be an, it's great to be an icon, and it's great to be there, but even listening to Amir, because we were doing a, like a little jam session at the Hard Rock Cafe, and you can hear that, like, wow, like he still sounds like a Philly drummer, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Great pocket, great feel. I mean, he conducts his way around, and, and and, and people let him do his thing, but when aesthetically, when he you know hits that groove, it's like wow, it's like it's just like listening to a go-go drummer. You know, you know that those guys live it, they breathe it. You know what I mean? It's like and and go-go is even way more removed from funk or anything that we deal with here in Philly. You know what I mean? But we're still connected to it. So I'm just looking at us as a history pot of of information, and hopefully the the younger generations will force the people that were kind of disconnected to it to get back into it you know what i mean that's that's how i'm looking at it and i think that's a that's a countrywide thing too i think it's even outside of philadelphia and pennsylvania that mm-hmm. all the people you know there's there's so many um i i play with the guitar player actually he's from philly jeffrey washington i don't know if you know him but mm-hmm. 
but yeah. you know, he he gets all upset that he's like all the the black kids don't. He's like they listen to hip hop, but none of them listen to blues or jazz or anything. Mm-hmm. And he's like, and that's their culture, mm-hmm. you know. And he's yeah. like, I don't. He was like, I don't understand how you can how you if you like hip hop or if you want to perform hip hop, how you don't realize that like James Brown, how much influence he had on hip hop. Yeah, you know, and like and you don't go back even farther to found to find out where, you know, where the history of of black music came from, you know, Mm -hmm. and and I think that's for anything that if you're going to play, you know, if you're going to play rock, then you should, you know, you can't. How can you be a rock and roll drummer and not know who Chuck Berry is? Mm-hmm. You know, like how can or how can you play rock and roll music without knowing? And I always, I, I totally agree with you that like learning the history of of what's going on and what came before you, and then nurturing that um, to make players continue to be great. And I wonder, it's funny to me because I, I think that we have all this access to the internet, we have YouTube, we have you know all the all of this information out there, and it seems like the more information that's out there, the less people are going to get it, which is weird. Yeah. You know, yeah. like I talk to guys that are, you know, in their 60s and 70s and they're like, man, I would have loved to have YouTube when I was a kid. You know, <laughs> right. like I could wait a minute. I could just go online and watch 100 videos of Elvin Jones. Right. You know, like <laughs> people were like, I would have killed somebody for that. Yeah, right. And, exactly. I, yeah. And maybe, you know, maybe because we have it now and it's so readily available, we take it for advantage or take advantage of it or take it for right. granted. I'm sorry. And, yeah. you know, and maybe we're like, well, it'll always be there. So I can always go back and check. I can check that out tomorrow if I want to. Right. It's not like, hey, Elvin Jones is coming into town tomorrow. You And, you, you know, you probably will never have another chance to see him or maybe in five years you will. So you better right. get down to the club and check him out. Exactly. You know, and I think the most of um, what I've been seeing is just like even with the younger kids, I was doing a thing and at the skate park in West Philly where Franklin's Payne just, you know, is going around and turning like old basketball courts and hockey rinks into skate areas. And I have my guitar there and, and not that I want this to be a black, white thing or, or anything. Cause I just, I really don't honestly believe in it. I just believe that people are educated or not educated. Mm-hmm. Young black kid comes to me and I'm holding my guitar. And, you know, even when I'm playing guitar, I'm still thinking like a drummer. So I'm just kind of like, whatever, you know, I'm doing my own little punk stuff and, you know, I'm a little nervous because I'm a black guy about to play my own version of punk rock in, in, in this black environment and, and the whole thing is a, a crapshoot anyway because it's like, you sh- I shouldn't think that, but right. what what humbled me the most is this kid was like, what is that? And I was like, what? And he's like pointing at my guitar. He's like, I've never seen that. And I'm like, what? And I was like, I, I just I just froze and I was like, it just made me think of my kids and I just wanted to basically start balling right in front of the guys in his eyes and be like, dude, you should, you, sh- you of all people should know what this is. I mean, it's right. like, and, and it's a, it, it blew, it blew my mind. The kid was like, what is How old was he? that? It had to be like eight or nine. I mean, like, wow. and at that point, all my kids were, they knew we could play and were goofing around. And I was like, wow, it's just unbelievable that like conditioning of, of, of the mind within the sense of family has has learned how to alienate their their youth when it comes to music and the, the, the aspirations of music or the inspirations of music. It, it can't all be just like here's a touch surface and here's bing bong 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 and here here's your like garage band of of music when these guys have like worked for these tones and and bought tons of drum kits and and and, and donated stuff and 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 these pe- people are honest people don't care enough to be like, well, if my kid isn't really happy with what's going on, like, well, what, what is my kid missing? Mm-hmm. And, I'm, and you're missing music. You're missing the aspect of like, you know, you can pick up a guitar, even if you're not serious or, or a pair of sticks or, or, or just a, 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 a conga drum. And, and, and the minute that you sound out in, in a city like Philadelphia, if your heart's in it, it's going to lead you to the right amount of education because the history here is, is, is ridiculous as far mm-hmm. as like the people that have really come here and made, themselves you know approachable you know to music i mean jeff lee johnson is one uh, person that I, that I look up to is like wow like he is a predominantly like great guitar player you know and mm-hmm. jeff also i mean these guys come from they had to kind of play their way through adversity but at least they had an instrument to play to keep themselves seen like like solid and, and seen by the public eye 
you can't. Not every kid can grab a mic and grab a drum machine and be known because you you, don't, you have no personality. I mean, the hours that you would have to put into making that machine your own is twice the amount of hours versus if you grab a guitar and the minute that you touch strings to wood to metal or sticks to to tone you, because of your body weight and your hand size and and when you are approaching that instrument. It, 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 it molds to you. A machine has to like be manipulated to mold to you. You know right. what I mean? It's like right. an instrument, a, a man-made instrument that has some tonal value and has somebody caring about it will mold to the person that's actually playing it. And when kids don't have that, it takes it makes them numb to being creative because they don't think that there's a possibility that they can even create. Right. You know, it's like funny. That. It's funny that you say that because when I when I was growing up, I grew up on. I, my brother is six years older than me, right? So um, now I'm 33. So I grew up listening to like Dr. Dre, NWA, BDP, Bobby Brown, all that stuff, right? And I mean, I was like infatuated with it, like singing it in the mirror kind of stuff, right? And was always wondering, I want this is what I want to do. I want to be on stage and I want to be performing in front of people. And it was before I started playing an instrument. And I was like, how am I going to do this? And it never even crossed my mind to play an instrument, which is crazy. And it's not that I didn't know what a guitar was or know what drums were or anything like that, but it never once even crossed my mind. And I was like, I either have to be a singer or a DJ or a dancer or something. You know what I mean? And then I thought about that a few years ago. I was like, man, I, I, because it was what I saw on television and what I was surrounded by. You know, and what I was surrounded by MCs and I was surrounded by DJs and, you know, I wasn't I wasn't seeing like guitar players and drummers. And and it kind of goes back to the where that kid came up to you and was like, what's that in your hand? You know, it's like because he's probably watching TV and seeing and listening to the radio and and seeing, you know, rappers or 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 anybody that's not playing an instrument. You know, it's just amazing that I think about it now that I'm like, man, how can I get on stage in front of people? And I'm like, I got to be like an MC, you know, like, right. yep. I'm like, how, how can I be the next, like, you know, DOC or something? <laughs> I'm like nine, you know, it's just, it's just funny to me that like, it's yeah. just the things that you're surrounded, that you're surrounded by that, that really influence your, your thought process and the nurturing that you were talking about before of like, if whatever, yeah. if you're around these people that are teaching you the history and kind of taking you under their wing, you know, that's the most important part. Yeah. I think. Yeah, totally. I mean, it's an application of sound, you know, mm-hmm. there's one. So I want to change the topic a little bit. Um, Cause the thing that's always amazed me about you is one, you've had, you, you've had the ability to, to learn all these different styles and, and you can play all this different stuff and be a professional musician, but at the same time, be a professional skateboarder. So to me, that just like, it blows my mind that you, that you had the time and, and the dedication to do both. And I know a lot of people now have hard enough time trying to master one thing and you've done a couple with different instruments and then skateboarding. How did you manage all that? Like, how did you, how did you become a professional skateboarder and a professional musician at the same time? Well, I think the, the music was um, through my father and definitely my mom. But as far as the aspect of like having a band, my dad had his own top 40 band mm-hmm. and, in Delaware, and they played all the Army bases, you know, Fort Dix and Dover and stuff like that. He was a PT instructor in the U.S. Army. So I guess through his training, through, you know, I, I want to big up the U.S. Army for like, you know, giving him, you know, what he gave, you know, to me because they really supported him and, and all of his buddies were, you know, in the Army and they all had, they were in the Army band too and they all had a regular top 40 band. So it just seemed like the kids that were coming up, like I was born in 64, so it seemed like 64 to like the 70s, that 10-year spurt where like the, the top 40 band was actually trying to emulate the records and emulate the bands on the records and the sound. It was like whoever was getting pulled through that, had a first chance of seeing what it was like to emulate Earth, Wind & Fire or Grand Funk Railroad or, you know, the people that are really playing. So once I got that in my system, about the time I was 14, I was already playing in my own top 40 band with friends of mine from high school because I just sat in with the, when I was in junior high, I sat in with this uh, Dickinson High jazz jazz band. And then the bass player happened to have his own top 40, you know, thing. And so I just learned how to kind of 
make money at an early age. And then my dad was always a stickler, like, look, you know, he took me out to his van and he was like, we're going to unload the van and then we're going to load it up again. And it was just like, why are we doing this? Because you need to learn how to pack a van. So, like, he just was always, you know, on me about, like, being professional so at least I can get to the gig, back home, you know, and then do what I have to do. So Mm -hmm. you learn that at a young age. I, I played baseball, but then I got out of baseball, and then skateboarding just kind of, like, latched on to me, and I just kind of went for it, and I just kept the same work ethic. Get to the skate park, come back home from the skate park, get to the gig, you know what I mean? If I can do two in one day, do two in one day. And then I just started traveling because skateboarding was it was a big sport in the 70s, and then it kind of hit the floor, and so it was able to re- restart itself with artists that were more driven about just skating and being like, oh, I'm a musician or I'm skating and I'm doing art or I'm skating or I'm doing tattoos or I'm skating and I'm just doing clay work. And there was only about a hundred of us. So we just kind of kept in it and we built it up. And it's like myself, Tony Hawk, this is the guy, Tommy Guerrero, Tommy Guerrero, all these different people mm-hmm. that were in the scene, like around 1984, we were all like our own little art gadget, like mutants that people just thought that we were just weirdos because we wanted to kind of do everything that was under the radar. We weren't trying to be like that rock band or trying to be like Neil Peart or trying to be like, you know what I mean? We were just like, let's just go to this punk rock level. And we were able to build ourselves up through just two raw forms of life. You know, most of my friends were strict punk rock musicians, but I was a guy that like knew what it was like to be like, okay, if I want to sit in with my dad's band at age eight and I'm at a bar because I'm able to be there with him, He's not going to accept if I want to play less than. i got to play like the drummer that just got off the stool. You know what I mean? Right. I can't. And that's, he just always, like, if you're going to sit in, you have to play music. That's it. You can't just, you know, I, you know, I can't just say, here's my son, and, and have all the rest of the guys, like, why do you have your son here? So, you know, it's like, it was cool to have that pressure at an early age because once I found out what I really love to do, then it was like micromanaging my day to be able to get enough music and enough skating in. And then then I started finding other people that were like that. And now there's like gazillions of people that are just like looking at music as one thing and then either their sports, like snowboarding, surfing as another. And I just hit the industry at at the right time where it was just, it was growing. And I just, I made it work. I mean, it was definitely taxing, especially touring. There were some tours that I couldn't skate at all. And I just felt like, wow, I'm just disconnected from my skateboard, but this is something that I want to do. I wanted to go to Europe. I wanted to get out here and see what it was like living out of a bag for like, you know, three months, you know, at a time. And, and it changes your whole dynamic, you know, of yourself. But it's that's you have to love it to want to do it. You just can't say, well, I'm just going to do this and do that, and then it comes because you still have to learn how to live every day. It's like it's 24 hours is 24 hours. It's what, it's what you do with that that makes the most sense to either myself or yourself or the person that's engaged with, okay, I just want to go out and like look at nature and, and chill and, and play my ukulele or do whatever. I mean, there's all, there's so many different forms of it, but skating and punk rock music at that time were very aggressive lifestyles and people didn't understand it. And I related to that aggressive lifestyle because it seemed like there was so many open avenues that I didn't have to be like, well, I'm going to be a jazz guy or a funk guy because the standard was so high in trying to come in after like Prince or Sly Stone or Elvin Jones or Tony Williams or, you know, I mean, just all the people that were out there doing it at such a high level. I was like, how am I going to get there that quick? You know, I'd have to really be sh- like shedding all the time. I got to do something completely different. I got to turn around and like, let me check out this punk rock reggae world. Let me see what's going on in here. And then I saw there was tons of room to grow. And then I just started jamming with different people and then skating with different people and then you know certain people were cool and certain people weren't you know so it's, mm-hmm. it took about a 20-year process but i learned a lot that if there's a new scene starting and it has anything to do with being creative and being physical or or, or just basically utilizing your time on this earth properly i mean things can get done you know what i mean mm-hmm. before you start having kids and all that stuff like that you know right <laughs> so what i how did um how did mcrad start was that just skateboarding friends that that also played instruments. Yeah, well, basically, uh, there's a skateboard park called Cherry Hill um, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. It was mm-hmm. an indoor park that was built in the '70s by this guy Wally Holiday and um, Isaiah Zagar, who does all the broken, uh, like a uh, glass mosaic. Excuse me, the mosaic work in Philly. If he uh, he has a place called Magic Garden Gardens on South Street, where it's like got all the different bike tires and it's a massive, massive artwork. His father. 
I mean, basically, his son Zeke was a skateboarder, also at Cherry Hill, and we always go there as kids, and we knew each other. The park closed down. I ended up moving in, to Philly in 1982, and I met back up with Zeke, and he was like, "Oh, I play bass now," and I'm like, "Oh, I'm playing drums. I got like a little kind of crappy drum kit." And, um, but you know, let, let's let's just work it out. And so we got to, you know to a couple other guys and started jamming. And at that point, I didn't know really that much how to play reggae or really that much how to play punk other than like Sex Pistols. So I had to kind of like learn how to play it properly. And I and I wanted to learn it with just like the fire, not just like I'm playing it. I wanted I wanted it to feel comfortable whether I was playing guitar, bass, or drums. And that that was what my father also taught me. It's like if you're gonna play something, you have to make sure it's not killing your body to get the tone out of it, you know, so mm -hmm. that's, you know, and, and from my teachings, that's what I, I Zeke was younger, because at that point, I was like 18, Zeke was 14, and then the other two guys were 16, so I was able to, like, give the information that my father gave me from the Top 40 band, and apply it to punk rock, and then the other guys, like, Tristan was, like, a skater from Holland, and, but he was, like, played reggae his whole life, so he taught me about, like, you know, playing one drops, and you know, dub, and we would just sit around and listen to records, you know what I mean? And, and at this point of our teenage youth, and up until my early 40s, there was like no drug play, no herb play, nothing. It was just straight, straight music. And so we got kind of like listed as like all these young kids playing music, these skate raps. They kind of like thought we were corny because we weren't out like trying to like party our brains out and drink it. And we were just like, no, we're going to play music, and then we're going to stop, and then we're going to go skate. And then we're going right. to make sure we get some eat. We're going to go hang out with Zeke's dad, who was like a world-renowned artist at that time and is now, you know, still. And so we had Isaiah as our mentor to kind of pull us through this skateboarding music thing. So I mean, it was skateboarding and music, and it was the band. But if, if it wasn't for Isaiah Zagar, I don't think McRab would have been as art-driven as, you know, it needed to be because we didn't know the effect of watching an elder being able to say, well, look, I'm just going to do self-portrait art, and I'm just going to break glass and cement, and, and I'm just going to mush it all together and make this beautiful contribution to Philadelphia. And then us as kids were like, well, we should do what Isaiah is doing. It doesn't matter what we're doing. It's how we're doing it. Like, how we're, what are we doing with our day? Because when you see an, an elder waking up and doing his art every day and the city's not doing that and it has made us think like well maybe we could do that you know what i mean mm -hmm. maybe maybe we can kind of make this mcrad thing into something and each man has to do its own kind of like way in life but to have an elder around that's really really gifted and also driven to do what they love to do even if it kind of drives them crazy it's a priceless to have that because like school of rock for instance it's great you can learn covers it's amazing, but is that what the industry is going to be when these kids, you know, grow 10 years from now? Like, you know, are they going to be industry savvy or not? You know what I mean? It's like, yeah, you can play covers, but it, what's really going on in music and who are the artists, who are the elders right now pushing the new information to these kids? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that's, we didn't have School of Rock, but we had our own little individual microcosms of bands and, and scenes and Philly and was so brilliant for that, you know what I mean? Because it gave us all time to grow. We didn't have to worry about, like, living in New York and, you know, trying to deal with Manhattan. And, you know, I mean, we had our problems here in Philly. But I know I'm kind of, like, going all over the place, but it's, like, literally... No, man, this is, this is what we're here for. Yeah, that's, I, mean, that's how, I mean, that's how it is. It's, like, to have gifted people to give you direction when you can grow and take your time, it's, like, priceless. That's when you know that, like, okay... I can ask a question, I can go out and experience. I can get another question, I can experience. Then I can put it on stage and, you know, and, and ask my sub-questions. Is this right or is this not right? Is this, is this a scene or it isn't a scene? And I would always question myself because so many people would get caught up in it. And I think that McRad, we kind of stood for, well, for this embodiment of music from 1982 to 1984, which is our original lineup, we crunched as much music as we could as kids, you know, like our first record deal, we got 10 hours in the studio, it was five for recording, five for mixing, a bunch of teenagers, and that was it, it was like us and an engineer, and all of our hands were on the fader, like, okay, you guys got, I have the drums, you have this person, you have that, if we need a dub, you, you hit that button, and the record was done that night, and that's hmm. the way the Beatles cut, cut records, at yeah. any part, and that's like, we were teenagers, we, 
we didn't know what we were doing other than like, okay, they said to go and rehearse. The label said to go and get your songs together because you have 10 hours to get it done. If you go over it, you're not going to finish your record. And that was, once again, another priceless scene within what was going on here in Philadelphia because we had elders looking out for us going, we can help you, but you're on a limited amount of time to get our conditioning from us to get it to you, to put your music out. And then once, once it was done, we had to put all the records in the sleeves and put stickers in the sleeves, and that was 300 records. So we all had to sit in the basement for hours on end, like servicing our own kind of music. And I didn't get it at the time, but it was like when you do that and you're touching every you know, piece of vinyl, you're literally blessing it if you're in a good mindset, going like, look, I hope someone buys it. And then it right. sold out, you know what I mean? And I was like wow, it does make sense to have contact with your your, your your attachments, even if it's a piece of vinyl, because if they know that, like, you sat there, you did the recording, you put it all together, once that person gets it, they're going to feel that energy. And that's what's another thing that's kind of being lost. We're so easy to hand everything over to other people, which is great because we can't micromanage everything. But there is something to say that if it's, if, if it's home-brewed, and it has the love in it, it is definitely going to transcend past it just being like a fad or a scene or a phase. It's going to be mm -hmm. like, wow, I remember when this came out or what I was doing or what I was wearing or how the song affected me, you know what I mean? Because it was like, it was homegrown. You can feel a homegrown project, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. You can feel a homegrown. You can, you can smell it a mile away when you see it. And, you know, it's just, it's amazing. Now, do you find yourself transitioning into that role now as you get older to to try to nurture younger kids that are coming up because i feel like that is that's if i got the biggest chunk that i got out of this this whole time that we've been talking is the importance of nurturing and the importance of learning history and the importance of really being connected with your art and what you're doing do you see yourself sliding into that role while you're continuing to do the stuff that you want to do in terms of playing and all that yeah i mean i i feel that like I'm, I'm nurturing myself as a young kid, you know what I mean? Because I just mm -hmm. turned 50, so I'm still having to utilize my body and carry my drum gear and, and also be like a smarter kid. But like, well, does, does things need to have as much weight or do I need to be stressing my body out, thinking about thoughts, you know, whatever. So when I'm able to go into like, I just did a project with the Philly Drum Project where I had to go into UArts and take three drummers and teach them something you know a drum piece and so i taught them kind of more or less what it was like to play hip-hop break beats and have three different drummers do three different things and it took about an hour for them to calm down and to like kind of play because they all wanted to play everything loud and, and and just kind of brutalize their ears but i had to kind of pull them down and be like well if you guys can't play and talk to each other while you're playing then you're not playing music and you're not playing drums so you should be able to play your part play it at your volume and then bring it down to and i said there's, there's three drum kits in the room. I said, there's a baby sleeping in the middle of this, this hole right here. You can't wake the baby up, but I want you to play your grooves and still be able to talk to each other. So when you're doing your performance, if you lose one, someone can talk to you because you are able to control your dynamic versus like you should play low because you're playing in a jazz thing or you should play low because you're playing you know, in some opera setting. I'm like, no, you should play low to be able to conversate with the musicians that you want to connect with. Then you can bring the... the and so that's what I've learned is like, well, I think more young musicians and people need to get that sort of nurturing because music nurturing is one thing, but the aesthetics of it, the dynamics of it is a whole other ball game because people just don't think about it. Like, wow, I can just play a groove and play like there's a baby sleeping in the room. And mm -hmm. if you can do that and, and still make music and let alone talk to your next person that you need to, then music never has to stop if you're explaining an idea. You know, and that's, that's what I feel that most young people need to, 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 to get across to themselves first and foremost, and elder people too. It's, just that it's, it's, our, it's our second, it's our inner voice, mm -hmm. and, and we should exercise that. And nurturing is one thing, but bringing up the inner voice of like, okay, if I do have to sit behind this drum kit or behind this bass or this guitar, you know, I can go full volume. But what's the inner what's the inner part of me saying? You know what I mean? Right. And that in itself it nurtures people without them even knowing it because you have to you have to kind of bring yourself down and your ears adjust and your ears are not compressing anymore. They're just opened up to the flower of of what it is. And then if you can talk through it, and then these kids started doing it, and then I just 
didn't have to nurture them anymore. I just, I just sat back, and if someone would get out of time, I would count them back into their part. But even so, I was telling kids, like, you know, once you start talking, then you can start counting through your music and counting through your sections if you can't visually remember it. So there's, all, there's so many different aspects of nurturing that I don't want to say that I'm just nurturing kids. I think I'm just nurturing the inner voice of music within people because once you do that, it just resonates across the board so quick that none of us can control it, that you go to see a guy like Elvin Jones playing. And that's all he's doing with the you know, guys that are 20, sometimes 30 years younger than him on stage. He's just like, look, listen to me. I'm playing brushes. You, know? right. you have to listen to me. You can't play. You just can't play the changes. You know? it's right. like you can't. can't go through the motions. Yeah. Right, right. You know, I was uh, looking through some of the stuff that you've worked on. Um, I mean, you go for everything from the stuff that you did with McRad to you played you remix songs for Amy Grant and Sting. You played bass on the or played the bass line for River Dreams for Billy Joel. Uh, played with Pearl Jam. How how does how does all that stuff happen? Like how did you how did you end up playing on the Billy Joel record or playing with Pearl Jam? Or because I know a lot of people out there are like, well, I've kind of played this one thing, but like how do I how do I you know get into all these other situations too? Yeah, well, it was that that was all Studio Four. Basically, they were the hub studio that I worked with, Joe and Phil Niccolo. They're called the Butcher Brothers, and they were kind of this really good tag team. You know, they're brothers also, but tag team producer, engineer, you know, situation that was happening in Studio Four when they were on Fourth uh, Street, like I see Third Street here in Philadelphia. And I kind of started linking up with those guys around the end of 89, and I met Jay Davison, who's a sax player who went out on tour with Whitney and Cinderella and a bunch of other people. He said, Chuck, you should come through, because we met in L.A. on a video shoot for Cinderella. And he was like, hey, I said, I told him, I said, I'm out in L.A. I just finished a solo record on Caroline, but I, my whole goal is just to get in the studio work. So I had to go in. I went in as a drummer, but when I went in, I met this guy, Andy Kravitz, and he was a guy, him and this other guy, Daryl Burgey, and a great percussion player and drummer. They, they were getting all the sessions in Philly. Like, nothing could move without those guys putting You just could not get a session. You literally would have to wait for one of those guys to get sick or be on the road right. to even think about getting a drum session because they could handle everything. Like, you know what I mean? And, and were ridiculous. I mean, there was other guys who played, but between Daryl Burgey and Andy Kravitz, I had to be like, well, hmm, I can't really get in as a drummer, so my next thing is bass. So once they found out that I could play bass, but I thought like a drummer, it was easy for them to be like, well, this, this guy's going to be able to follow where I'm going and be able to put the notes in the right you know, place. Because at that point, editing was starting to happen and not just like digital editing, tape editing was, I mean, it was always going on. But at that point of like 90s, when it was really starting to happen, like air cutting snares, and this is two inch tape. So it's like you're cutting 23 minutes of tape at $220 a reel. Mm -hmm. And getting 23 minutes, you know, for I mean, it's just like thousands upon thousands of dollars are hitting the floor. So at that point, the musicians were the last common, like, focus in that whole mathematical equation. You had to be like the guy that's just getting the tone onto the tape because once they started manipulating the tape, they didn't want to have to worry about you and your parts, you know. So that's right. how I learned. And from dealing with Andy, Dal Burgi, and Joe and Phil Niccolo, as projects came in, like the Billy Joel thing came in the studio for, it was slotted as a remix and ended on his record because we, had, at that point, it had so many, like, you know, sessions under us that we were just like, okay, well, Billy Joel's going through this thing and he needs this to be a great remix. We're going to make it seem like it's a single. And we did that on our own, you know, as a, as a group of studio musicians. So I think that getting a great studio you know, musicians set up, or just having a crew of guys that can get together and rehearse and record, even if you're doing it with only one mic in the room, if, if you're able to listen and internalize it, when someone comes through town, they're going to know, they're going to be able to sense the rhythm section that's together, or the groups of musicians that can play together, and that's always going to be a go-to within the industry. Whenever there's a rhythm section that happens, they always get hired, like most of all the, you know, the NRD or just any any other the big you know touring bands they're all Philly musicians I mean and, right. and just because we we still believe in the rhythm section we still believe in that studio like the sound of Philly what, what happened back with Joe Tarsi and Mike Tarsi and all those dudes that just made all those great records there was like four or five levels of bands you know that 
just constantly wrote and constantly played gigs all the time. That's all they did. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Like Bunny Sigler, you know, David Ivory's coming out of that, that, that scene also. You know what I mean? He was the baby of that scene, and he knows all those guys in it. And Bunny used to tell me, like, yeah, we used to write, like, sometimes 30 songs in, in a day. We'd just sit there and just keep writing and writing and writing, and that's what Gamble and Huff and those guys wanted to do. It was like, it's all about your catalog. And, and I think building a catalog and building a sound within either your group of friends or within your scene will always bring in professional people to say, well, if this is what the Philly scene is sounding like and they can go around and see other scenes that aren't sounding like that, then they're going to go, well, we're going to go mess with these guys in Philly because these guys are hungry. You know, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to provide the essence of what music sounds like. And that's basically how I got all that stuff going because I was with a great bunch of people and, when someone would go on the road, they would make a connection, and they would make a new friend, and they would say, oh, go check Studio 4, and all of a sudden, this person would come through, and that person would come through, and you know what I mean? And A&R people would start bringing projects through, and, you know, it's just, and, and also with that, even with the Amy Grant, and, you know, more, more so the Amy Grant session, it's just that I had the A&R guy, like, over my back going, like, I want, you know, I never knew love before, and I want Philadelphia Freedom in one bass line right now. I was like, I want it now. I'm like, I don't want you to, you can't go home and rehearse it. I want it. You've got to give it to me now. And I'm like, it's like my first session in the studio playing bass. And I'm like, what is going on? This guy's like, I'm like, oh, I see what they're doing. They're taking pop culture and merging it together so they can keep their jobs fruitful and make this music sound like it's going to pop because they have a, they have a voice. They have a, they have a singer. They have they have the, the chord structure, they have the song laid out, but they still need what the aesthetics of great music sounds like. So Elton John's band, that Philadelphia Freedom, whether that was a silly band or not, and he's never knew love before, I mean, they're totally two separate bands. But the minute that you take both of those bass players or both of those drummers and you nudge them together in one song with a different lead singer, especially someone like Amy Grant, who has a beautiful voice, and, you know, it was a Vince Gill, you know, he was on it too. So it's like, it was easy to kind of say, okay, I'm going to like roll this bass line like the drums are rolling, but I have to reference these two songs in that split second, or they're going to call the next guy that can do it, you know, and that's, that's basically how that studio stuff back in the day worked for me, especially when there was an A&R person there that basically they just knew the catalog of music. They couldn't say, you know what, this was the bass player on this one. That's what I would do. It's like, check this bass player. I want, to, I want you to take Jocko, and I want you to take either you know, Larry Graham and smash them together. Or I want you to take Stuart Copeland and Neil Peart and smash them together and give me a drum track. You know what I mean? It's like, that's producing. That's a production aspect of like, you know, the microscope is picking up the interpretation of who's conversating to it. But if you don't have someone there being the executive producer of that, then it's left up to the person in their own mind. So I'm glad that I was able to get that discussion up front it, it seemed weird for me because I was think I think we all should be creative, but even up to D'Angelo, he would break down parts and be like, "Well, this is like kind of One Nation Under a Groove, and then this is kind of like this song, and this is kind of like that." So there's all these reference points of like how people, you know, you know, emulate great things that we're all used to listening to, and that's what I think that I had to learn to get to that next level to even acquiring that work, not just being like. I play great, I read great, I want the session, you know, because certain producers don't work like that. They're like, I want a feel-good type of musician in the studio, you know what I mean? Because they know at the end of the day when they're mixing it, you know, when you listen to it over and over and over, you don't want the trained ear to be like, oh, I'm listening to a trained musician. It's got to be entertainment at the end of the day. If it's going to be played over and over and over. It has, yeah. to, be, it has to be music, but, you know. I, I agree, man. I totally agree. <laughs> So I always get a lot of people asking me about gear, um, and I know that there's a lot of gearheads that listen to it. What's what's your what's your go-to kit that you typically play? Um, I have a CNC custom drum kit. I have a mahogany uh, kit that's basically twenty twelve sixteen, and then I have a maple kit. I have two different maple kits. One's a twenty-eight inch kick drum, and one's a twenty-six. And then I have just kind of, you know, 12s and 16s, which are kind of my sound. And some are maple, some are mahogany. And I just have a bunch of different snares. And the cymbals that I'm playing right now are TRX, but I'm making the switch over to Bosphorus. And I play, you know, Fader Sticks. I love them. And I'm using drum tacks. And, you know, I just, I like CNC drums because they can just make 
whatever. I mean, any company can make you what you want. I just that they were able to, like, at the time that I was really jonesing for a big kick drum, they made something that was great, and now they're even, like, revamping that kick drum, and, and instead of it being 16, they're making it only 14 as far as the depth of the drum, so I'm excited to get it back and play it. So I, I just feel that, like, that CNC was the company that I could feel like, wow, whatever drummer that I want to be, as long as my financial situation is right, I can achieve my goal that right. way. If they make me a kit, that kit's going to last for at least a good 10, 15, 20 years as long as I keep it. Even if I have to keep the heads on it for a year or two straight, I know I can take it into a studio and it sounds ready to record. And that, mm -hmm. that to me, is priceless because a lot of drummers spend money on gear and they can't take their kits into a studio. And I'm like, why do that? It'd be better to buy a beater kit right. until you know you what you're travel. doing. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> yeah, so, man. <laughs> I played a, a Yamaha stage custom kit for like 10 years. You know, it was like 400 bucks or something like that. But I was like, Hey man, you know, I'm not, I gotta, I gotta learn what I'm doing here before I, yeah. Cause I mean, you can, you can spend a lot of money on something and then the engineer's like, ah, and you're like, wow, there's my investment. And then you can't even turn your investment back around. And that's a whole nother conversation. And I'm not trying to shit on any drum companies. I mean, it's not their fault. I mean, they, they to even have uh, to build a drum kit, even if it's not that good, you still have to believe in the product to get it to its end result. You know right. what I mean? It's that educating the buyer is something that I think the drum market, not that they slacked on, but it could have been done a lot sweeter just so things could be sustainable. Because all a drummer honestly needs is an amazing snare sound and a unique cymbal sound. Kicks mm -hmm. and toms are one thing, but your snare and your cymbal sound, that's going to... Neil Peart, you automatically know the snare cymbal sound. Stuart Copeland, the same thing. Tony Williams, the same thing. John Bottom was like, okay, the kick drum, but it was the size of the kick drum. I mean, he probably could have made a 20-inch sound like that. He just wanted to get over loud amps because the monitors and all that stuff, was, they were minimal back then when they were playing. These, mm -hmm. they, were, they were, you know, the on-stage the on volume was twice the front of house volume at, at all times with Hendrix and all those guys, you know. So I just think that... That, that that aspect of of just learning about drums and what drummers had to do to get their sound is something that I wish drum companies could would have kept in their drums. They just wanted to be like, well, here's this color, here's this shape, here's a hole in it, here's not a hole in it, here's this rim, here's that rim. And the price is so much versus like, this is what this drum sounds like with a 57 on it. This is what this drum sounds like with this mic on it. This is what this snare drum sounds like with the top and mic, top and bottom mic'd. And, with this stick or with that stick or with rushes, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like you have to find that out after you spend thousands and thousands of dollars. You'd be like, oh, all I need is basically either a Black Beauty or a great Tama or a great Swinglin' or this. And then I, can, I know that people are used to hearing those sounds. So if I have to sound pro, even if my skills are not up, tonally when I walk into a studio, my snare, my cymbals are going to be like right on point. And that's... That's a signal for all of us, you know what I mean? And, and, that's, and, and that's the stuff that drives engineers crazy when they have to start formulating those sounds on their own. You know, I mean, now they have drum replacement, but still, you know, the editing process of what I see engineers go through with drummers, it's, it's like frightening, you know what I mean? It's like, and plus it sounds so non-organic. It sucks, man. You know? I just want to hear, like, a drum set with, like, three mics in the room, and that's it. Right. You know? <laughs> It's horrible because I mean, I, I, even working on the sound line, I mean, it's like half the time is spent editing drums. You know what I mean? And it's just like because it, 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 well, and that's with a great studio kit in it. I just with most people that they would just bring in and learn what's going on, so they don't have to make it so hard for drummers to sound good. It'd be it'd be a lot better. It'd be I think easier on drum companies to be like, look, you know, like you guys should. This is the level of where you want to be when you're recording. You want this type of tone. I mean, what is that tone? Like, what, what are the vitamins in that snare tone? It's not just the overall crack of it. I mean, it's the wood, how it's seasoned, or, you know, what type of environment it is, or if you're in a room that's really bouncy, what, time, what type of snare do you use? I mean, that information should be out for everybody. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It shouldn't just be like you buy a snare drum and you walk out, and then all of a sudden you take it to a gig and you're like, oh, well, what's, what's going on? It's, it's right. not... And then react. Well, you're in a room that was a lot louder, and now you're in a room that's all tight, and your snare's not doesn't have the same type of body. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's like, and it's just that. I mean, drums are way too expensive for people to just be guesstimating whether it's right for them or not. You know what I mean? You know, I think that one of the things I used to struggle with when I was younger was, like, I would hear, you know, I w I would hear 
Steve Jordan play on the track or I would hear Steve Gadd or somebody and and I'm like, man, I really love that snare sound. And I'm like, how how am I supposed to figure out what how I can get that snare sound? Exactly, yeah. You know, and I'm like, I don't, I, I have no idea. I, I don't right. know, if, I don't know if it's a metal snare, a wood snare, like diecast. I, I've no, I have no reference point at all. Right. So right. it's like, so then you try to get your snare to sound like that, and you're using like a 13 inch metal snare and he's using a, a 14 inch wooden snare. You know what I mean? And you're like, Oh, I can't get this. I, Oh, maybe I'll tune it down. Maybe I'll tune it up. You know what I mean? Right. And right. so how do you suggest that people do it since the information is not out there? Because like you said, it's too expensive for the trial and error thing of going out and I buying them. I think it's, it's, a, it's like a, people should just ask more questions. I mean, if they like something, they should ask more. They should definitely go in on it. And because that's, that's the main reason why I found CNC because I, I started with a company called Boom Theory and you know I had an endorsement with them and then I went to Tie Drums and you know great drums and then I kept asking them like look I need to make something bigger and then they wouldn't and then all of a sudden this dude Jason who was playing for this group Hot Snakes he's from Philly and he's also played in Burning Brides and he was like yo check this company out called Carball Drums CNC Custom they are ridiculous and that's when I started to learn and the, the first thing that Bill Car you know Carball Car- Car- said to me was like send me a CD of your playing. And I was like, what? He's like, no, send me the CD, and we can tell you basically how we can make your drums. And every drummer that I've sent to them, they say the same thing. Email me a song. And every time I've seen a drummer with that, their own kit, it sounds just like the way they needed to sound. You really? Know I mean? It's unbelievable. And because they're a father and son drum company, they started refurbishing old drums in Kansas City for all their friends. They didn't care what company. And still, if you brought your old Slingerlands to Kansas City and said, Bill, I need you to make these things, or Jake, they would go in on those drums and be like, it's going to take you this much time, it'll cost this much, and you'll get your kit back. They do, they, that's the one drum company that does not discriminate against drums sounding good. And that's, that, that blew me away. I was like, every drummer needs that. And I found that after playing on a ton of records and then I, then I started listening back to the records that I played on before I had CNC and I could hear the lack of tone that I wanted to generate and I was like that's crazy I should you know it's like it's not that you don't you shouldn't have to spend that money it's just that there are family based companies out here that really care about sharing knowledge with people that really want it and it's right. such a blessing because they saved me so much money and they, everything that I have you know, things that, that didn't resonate with me that, that, that I got from the CNC, not that they weren't sounding right, it was just a different tone. If I was in the studio, I was, you know, trade a friend of snare, I'd be like, hey, if your snare sounded like crap, this one sounds like great in this room. It's not really working for me live at this point because I don't want to really stress the snare out for me, have, me having to hit it too hard. I just want to be able to put a drum in its right place because it's naturally going to be the happiest in its, in its, in its, in its own environment. And mm-hmm. I fully believe that of sharing whatever knowledge that, that I can and I've learned that from 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 Bill and, and, and Jay Carwell those guys are just so on it and, and not that Bucks County isn't or any other the local guys Matt Gaither not that they're not but they're just not putting out I mean those guys did all the custom orders for Tama like all the weird stuff that was coming out of Tama for a while like the Vista lights they were all being you know, worked on by Bill and Jay Cardwell. I mean, you know, they would send all this stuff to Kansas City. Those guys would make it and then ship it all back. And now those guys are now building Jake, you know, the Cardwell family. They're making their own shells. And I had a guy right. in there that he's the only guy that makes the shells. They only let one guy mess with the machine. He's like, this is what I do. This is what I, I mean, he's like, this is what I've studied. And I just sat there and watched him, like, take this flat piece of wood and make a floor tom out of it. You know, I was just like, this is... It's, it's, this, this is, every drummer needs to see that. So at least they know when they're going into buying a drum kit that they can have the option of saying, well, maybe if I can only afford this, then I'll get this piece and that piece, and then I'll get my custom snare made. So at least I know that something happens around this, these other tones versus like, let me just get one generic kit. It sounds like one generic tone, and it's only going to give me one generic delivery. You know what I mean? And right. Just, for a drummer, you could lose a lot of gigs if you're not totally... Up the snuff. I mean, people will accept it, but for that drummer that comes in with that right sound, it just makes people relate to the sound a lot easier. I don't know why. It's just the human ear is it's, it's, it's a sensitive creature. It, it knows what it likes. It just does. It's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the way it is. I totally agree. 
So you have all changing topic a little bit away from the gear um, for all the stuff that you've you've done in the past and your your resume speaks for itself. What's what's on the burner now? What's what's the future look like for Chuck Trees? Um, I have a song that I'm working on with uh, this uh, hip hop artist Murs called Ultimate Robot. And I'm about to release um, just on my own to Bandcamp, and I just did a, a McGrab record about a year ago called The Begin, which is on Space Shower Records in Japan, and then I released it on CD Baby and iTunes here for America, and then I'm going to start writing another record for myself, which I'm also playing like bass, drums, guitar, and and a bunch you know, a bunch of other things. You know, Branching the keyboards and been working with a bunch of different artists, you know, King Brit and a bunch of different singer songwriters, and mainly just collabing with Dan at Soundmind and also David Ivory, you know, over at, you know Ivory Ivory Sound, you know, just over in like the Bluebell area and just just kind of making it making it work, you know. I just I, I want to I get to at the point where I need to pick up my acoustic guitar and and relate to it like I can relate to it, like my drums. That's the one thing. That I'm starting to realize now because acoustic guitar playing is a lot like drum playing. You have to kind of find the right thing that molds to you, and then you got to find what songs that you can pull out of it. Because when I pick up an electric, you know, the electric just it just emulates on its own. You know, it's like playing an electronic drum kit versus a, an acoustic drum kit. You know, the, the, the electronic can give you all different sounds, and it's great and it's immediate and it's quick. But the acoustic, when you have to kind of you know, you got to kind of fit your personality into it. So that's what I'm doing, like taking my drum knowledge and placing it into like, you know, what type of a front person am I? Can I pick up an acoustic instrument and, and make it feel like I make a drum kit feel? And that's the, the biggest challenge that I have right now because it's like I can't use all four limbs right now. I just have to use two and use my mind. Like drums, I can use my hi-hat, the kick, I can use both hands. So at any given point, I can make something happen and... I love that aspect of it, but I also love the aspect of songwriting because I think it's going to help my drumming get to the next level to where I can be, you know, more like where where Neil Young is. Like, you know, I can write a simple song and right. and still a drummer can play it and, and it feels great. You know what I mean? That's that's what I want to do. I'm in in the Dylan Neil Young Sly Stone era of my mental thinking. I want to make songs happen, but I also know that like I got to write songs that are fun for drummers to play. You know what I mean? Right. It's, it's, I love playing live music with great drummers, even if they're just playing only a couple of styles of music. If they love what they do, I at least want to know that I'm catering to that that aspect of keeping rhythm within my songwriting and, and, and my approach of it. I like it. And if you need a drummer, man, call me if you're going to be playing bass or singing or playing guitar, man. I would love I would love to play with you anytime, man. Yeah, for sure, definitely. Anytime. Definitely. So speaking yeah. of learning, where do you, you teach privately? I do teach privately when people, you know, acquire through either email and stuff like that. And, you know, normally I just keep it pretty basic. I don't really teach that much reading. I just teach kind of just the aspect of, you know, what I've learned or if someone comes in with, like, I want to learn this part, what do I do, you know, and then whatever I can teach. I have a wealth of, you know, drummers that I can, you know, handle or just pass the students along to, you know what I mean? So right. I, would, I would definitely love to keep that going. But what I want to start focusing on is the actual drummer in the studio, I think that that's going to, the stronger the drummers are with the knowledge that they have when they're being recorded will make their chops and, and everything that they want to get to a lot better because I've, I've seen David Ivory really go in on some drummers and I've had a couple of guys come to me and be like, I, this guy really hurt my feelings and I'm like, well, get in line because he did that with me about like 50 times already and, you know, he's the producer, he owns the studio, he knows what those microphones sound like with someone that knows how to play. So you can't, he can't lessen his value of, of appreciation of music just because you don't want to do your homework. You know, it's like, right. and, and that's, and it shouldn't be left up to the producer or the engineer to do that. Drummers should know this is what I sound like at this volume of music, whether it's like soft rock or singer-songwriter stuff or metal stuff. It's like, this is what I can play. These are my limitations. You shouldn't have to wait to have to have an engineer tell you, well, here's your limitations. You should know your limitations before you even walk into a studio. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? That way you can grow past what it is because a lot of drummers get their feelings hurt because, you know, some engineers and, and producers just don't want to deal with it. They don't, they don't, they don't, I've never heard them say, this guy's trained perfectly. He's a drum corps, he does everything. He sounds great. It's like, no, it's like, if you're not playing to the microphones, you're not 
really playing drums. You're playing the aspect of drums, but as long as there's a recording of a great drummer, you're going to have to go to that level if you want to be heard and appreciated. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's like mm-hmm. that's, just, that's just the bar that those guys raised, and they had they didn't even have digital recordings back then. It was all analog. It was just like, here's what I sound like in this room. And right. that's what I, there's no fixing I, it. No, no. <laughs> Which I love. I love that. I, the last record I recorded, we recorded Real to Real, so. Sick. Yeah. yeah. So I like that's it. Good stuff. <laughs> Well, cool, man. Well, I appreciate you uh, you taking all this time to chat and and sharing all your knowledge. And it was great to uh, you know to chat with you again. We haven't talked in a while, so it was really great to connect with you again. So, and I know all the listeners got a ton of information from you. And uh, yeah, well, I'll definitely be keeping everybody up to date with what's going on in the world of Chuck Trees because I know you always got something going on. So. Cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, you, you were some music that I'm working on, and I definitely, you know, will get back to you about some projects because I want to. I'll get some stuff going on soon. That'd be that'd be great, man. All right. Sounds good. Thanks again, dude. I'll talk to you soon. All right, Nick. Have a good one. All right, you too. See ya. There you have it, the one and only Chuck Treese from my hometown, Philadelphia. And like I said, Chuck has a wealth of knowledge to share. And he's been awesome to me ever since I've ever met him. And he's just an amazing dude, amazing player. And I love the way that he looks at the drums and music and life. And it kind of reminds me of the way that Michael Carvin is in terms of being really interconnected with the instrument and being interconnected with the music. And that's just an extension of your life. And I really dig that philosophy and that and that approach to playing and life in general. So I'm, I'm hoping that everybody out there got a lot out of this interview and got as much out of it as I did. I've never actually sat down with Chuck and, and had that kind of conversation with him. Um, I mean, we've talked about music a lot, but, but never like that in a, in a interviewing sort of way. So that was cool to hear, hear him talk about, about some things like that. Be sure to check me out drummersresource.com or facebook.com forward slash drummers resource on Instagram at drummers resource resource drummers resource drummers resource instagram at drummers resource and twitter at drummers r source if you have any questions please email me nick at drummers and until the next podcast thanks so much for listening i really do appreciate it i know i say it a lot but i mean it i really do appreciate it i'll talk to you soon peace <laughs>